Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science? Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. Rules and, and ethics and everything else. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, please go to askbillnye.com and type on in. Tell us what's on your mind. And I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Bill, great to be here with you. When I was of getting excited about being an astronaut age, I was uh, nine years old. I took my first trip to New York, New York, the town's so nice they named it twice, to the World's Fair. This is before the internet, people. We would have these big exhibitions. Uh, corporations and governments from around the world would put on display their finest efforts, the future, about the future, and so on. And the United Nations had a total board, a totalizer, a scoreboard depicting the presumed or estimated number of people on Earth, human population. And we had just missed it, changing from 2,999,999,999 people to 3 billion people. Well, today, they're well over 7.5 billion people. By 2050, there'll be 9 billion people. And they're all going to want to do what, Corey? I would imagine they're all going to want to eat. That's right. Food. And so I wonder, I say to myself, Bill Nye, host of Science Rules, Guy. Uh, how are we going to feed all these people? And I think about that when I'm eating. And of course, when I'm eating, I also think about science. I think about cooking. I think about what changes to food when we heat it. I think about boiling water and the, the little bubbles of water vapor. It's exciting. And so to discuss this, we have a guy who is fascinated, perhaps obsessed with humans' relationship to food. That's right, people, from the Sporkful, none other than Dan Pashman. Thanks, guys. Oh, well, that's a very advanced sound effect you have there, the applause. Very oh, nice. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Speaking <laughs> of which, Dan. Yes, sir. Greetings. Why do you do the Sporkful? What goes on on the Sporkful? Well, so it's a podcast, and I love to eat. And oh, really? Yes, Tell us about that. I really, really 
really get a lot of pleasure from food. So, so I started this podcast nine and a half years ago, basically in my living room because I love to eat. And our, our slogan for the show is it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. Uh, and I love to obsess about the tiniest details of the eating experience. I love to interview comedians and celebrities about what they're eating and learn more about other people, other cultures, and get into sometimes serious issues of identity by talking about food. So, and we do food science, a lot of food science. So speaking of food science. Yes. Uh, have you thought a lot about the effect or the impact of 9 billion people trying to eat on the Earth's surface? For sure. Yeah. And uh, what do you do? You see it as a piece of cake, pun intended, <laughs> uh, or a great challenge? No, a hundred percent. It's it's certainly it's a it's a big concern for all of us. And there's the issue of food waste. There's the amount of, of effort that goes in you know, every bite of food that we take. There is an impact on the planet to produce that bite of food. Some bites of food require more effort and impact than others. Um, and and then to put in a lot of effort to food and then have some of that food go to waste. Is even is even worse. Do you? I'm not joking. Do you say grace or a form of grace before you eat? Uh, I don't. My friend Eddie Koblenz, my best friend growing up, his family always did. And when I would go there for dinner, I would always forget that they did that, and I would start eating by accident. But and look, you're fine now. <laughs> no, but there is there's, there's a lot to time. it. There's a lot to it to, to taking that moment to appreciate all the effort that goes into producing any sort of meal. I mean anything, and it, it, it this applies from. What did we have today? Cups of tea. Tea leaves are grown on farms on the other side of the world, and yet they're a commonplace, and we take it for granted. Just heating up the water to make the tea, or the, more importantly, perhaps the coffee, uh, it takes tremendous amount of energy that's somehow available to everybody. And so we can't take this for granted, man. 100%. And I, I certainly have made an effort to eat less meat than I used to, um, you know, partly for health and partly for environmental reasons. And so I, I try to eat uh, less I, – I eat probably – 50% less meat than I did 10 years ago. So if you, everybody, if you want to be a vegetarian, the old saying is start with one night a week. Right. And work your way out if that's your thing. Yeah, I set a resolution. Like it used to be that I would have like a turkey sandwich for lunch and then some kind of meat for dinner. Like there was always meat at lunch and always meat at dinner. Would you have for breakfast? I would either have like cereal or no breakfast. Would you have an egg? Sometimes. See, I was never that's huge... three. That's three sources of well, that's animal a... protein. Animal protein, right. Depends on whether you want to cut, count that as meat because you don't have to kill an animal in the process. No, generally not. In right. fact, if you do, you get a lot fewer eggs. <laughs> You're kind of doing it wrong. Right. But I, I resolved that I would only eat meat at lunch or dinner as many days as possible. So, you, yeah, that's cutting it in half. Right. Just shooting from the hip. Right. And I've been pretty good at, uh, at keeping that up. So, Dan, I know this is often a question that people have is, you know, how do you remain mindful about all these things about your food but still enjoy your food, you know, not feeling guilt all the time? Do you find – does being aware of all those other issues, does that interfere with your pleasure or does it any – maybe even enhance your pleasure? Once in a while it interferes. There are days that I feel guilty about things I'm eating, but it's – Probably infrequent. I would say, what sort of guilt do you feel? Well, like, um, actually, you know, when I feel, feel more food guilt is when I waste food. Okay. That, yeah. that makes me feel guilty. So I give you three types of guilt. Okay. Wasting food. Right. Then uh, guilt where you've eaten something you feel you shouldn't have eaten. Right. And then right. you uh, because it will uh, you eat too much, too big a dessert. Right. So you feel bad about yourself. Right. Then the third one would be when you've you've done something to the world where you've eaten meat that's made by a cow that used too much water to be produced and the poor cow and so on. Right. I would say definitely I sometimes feel guilty if I waste food. Um, and I eat a, I, <laughs> and that sometimes I deal with the fear of that guilt by eating food that I don't even want to be eating. 
so that I don't have to throw it in the garbage. And then I overeat because I wasn't even hungry. And then I feel guilty for overeating. And you have kids, and that's what you do, right? Right. And yeah. then I have to, I've earned, like my father before me, Bill, I have been nicknamed the human garbage disposal. It's it. Oh, wow. It's really, that's, be proud. It's the circle of life. Yeah, we, yeah. we call it the, the, it's the dad cleaning process. Right. It, you know, just whatever's on the table. Hey, you know, that, that stuff's not going to waste. Right. So yeah. as I mentioned earlier, this is a call-in show, AskBillNye.com. Corey, looking over uh, to you in your direction, I see that we have callers. We do. Um, we have a caller uh, named Nicole. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay. You are on with Bill and I. Hi. Um, so this question came up last year when I was teaching marine science, and we were talking about cold, uh, dense, salty seawater. And somehow it led to a teacher who taught near me, who liked to be the smartest person in the room, saying that the reason why people salt their pasta water is to lower the boiling point so that it will boil faster. And I have learned since then that a lot of people think this. So I don't know where that came from. Do you think that salting the water has any effect on flavor or temperature? So, Nicole, (laughs) this is, as Corey pointed out, this is a fabulous question, I think, near and dear to all pasta enjoyers. Yes. Dan, among (laughs) which you are whom, if I may construct it for Big enjoyer, big enjoyer, yes. And so why do you feel, because I got strong opinions here on physics, but why do you feel we salt the pasta water? Well, in terms of the science, I'll defer to you, Bill. I have heard the same thing, that putting the salt in the water makes it boil faster. So sometimes I put salt in water when I'm making, like, hard-boiled eggs, just because I thought it would make it boil faster, but I'll let you tell me no, if that's hold it. true. But I do want to say that salt in water for flavor absolutely makes a difference. And when you're making pasta, you should absolutely should salt your water liberally with more salt than you think you need, and it will make your pasta taste much better. Just because it's got that salt, mouth-stimulating jolt of sodium ions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Corey, yes, you're a science reporter with years of of uh, behind the keyboard uh, a, a, a veteran one might say so uh, do you uh, do you have a strong opinion about the salt and the boiling cuz i do uh, strong opinion about salt and boiling my uh, my my opinion is that the uh, the mansplainer here might be a little bit off okay, base okay one, one, one second. nicole nicole was this yeah. this person presenting this information to you unsubstantiated was this person a man or a woman they were a man okay so, so he uh, was mansplaining. Yes. Well, thank goodness yes. Nicole has called three other men to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're only going to people-splain here. We, this is the, the nature of this show is we only people-splain. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, but, uh, look, so, I mean, salt does, you know, it, it lowers the specific heat of the water, which so would— So the, the water can hold less heat. Which would make it boil a little more easily. But it also, you know, salt— in, ge- in general, adding extra things to the water raises the boiling point. The thing is, both of those effects are very, very small. Uh, to, to, to appreciably change the boiling point, you'd have to add pro- like 100, 200 grams of salt. It's a, it's a lot of salt. To a liter? To, a, to, a, to one liter 10, of water. 10 or 15, 20% of the mass of the thing would be salt. Right. You'd have to be really dumping salt in there to have a big impact on the, on the boiling point. But here's where I think the myth originates, Nicole, and thank you so much for calling. Uh, when you, you may have seen or encountered a beer or perhaps more importantly, champagne, the key there, what makes it so delicious is taking the, 
vapors into your nose, and this is done by making the champagne sparkling, by having um, mm-hmm. uh, organisms in the process, in the fermentation process that produce this gas, and the bubbles that form form on what physicists like to call nucleation sites, where the bubbles nucleate, where they form a center, where they form a nucleus. So if you have very hot water, it's sitting there on the stove, getting hot, getting hot, getting hot, and you put in a couple tablespoons of salt with its rough edges, its sharp crystalline corners, then the thing will start to boil immediately. You've, you've, um, you can get it superheated, as it's called, take it just slightly above its boiling point before bubbles start to form. And so when you put the salt in, wham, it starts to boil. And so this could easily lead to a reproducible phenomenon that would cause a human to conclude that the salt caused it to boil, which is true. But then you would take it one extra unsubstantiated step and say the salt caused it to boil sooner and I think or more the, easily. The most important thing I take away here is that salt – in your pasta water makes the pasta taste better. Yes. I think that is the only – I think that is the thing that really matters. But, but so wait, let me understand because I've had the exact experience you described, Bill, that I have added – especially like when I get impatient, the water's already been on the stove There's for old a while. sayings about it's watching pots, Dan. I, I, <laughs> a wash pot never boils, but a wash pot with salt added <laughs> does seem goes. to bo- – Right, does seem to boil. And so – what is happening then if it's not uh, altering the boiling temp- oh, oh, so temperature? So let's keep in mind, you know, people say it's like watching paint dry to describe something that would be disenchanting. Right. Or it's like watching water boil. I encourage everybody to do both. Someday, watch water boil. It is astonishing. It forms tiny little bubbles, and then it forms bigger and bigger bubbles that bubble to the surface. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, Try holding a match, a lighted match, above your boiling water. It will go right out because what's coming out of the – what the bubbles are forming, they're not bubbles of air. Those are not bubbles of air, peoples. They're bubbles of water vapor, another gas that's around us all the time. <sighs> between me and the microphone, between you and your loudspeaker situation, earphones, Nicole, yeah. is water vapor. And it's another separate gas that does not sustain combustion. And it comes out of the boiling process. And it's just cool. Okay. So, Nicole, so Nicole uh-huh. that's a great experiment for you to do. Uh, Nicole, are you yourself a, 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 a pasta water salter? Are you, you a user of the salt method? Um, I am, but I only have ever heard of it for flavor, except one time when I was watching an episode of Chop. And one of the contestants said that a mentor had told them to never salt their pasta water. Oh, I am open-minded, but very skeptical. Yeah, that's wrong. That's just wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of maniacs in the world. I think that's what we so, Corey, Corey, along this line, someone you're very close to, I believe she's your wife. Yes, uh, my wife, the doctor. Is, Is it true f- that you're very close with her, Corey? <laughs> you know, uh, I, we'll continue this conversation uh, after the show. <laughs> but she's a physician. She is. And she has opinions about salt. Uh, so, so a lot of people stay away from salt. Like the person is probably telling you not to salt the water or saying, you know, we're, oh, you've got, you know, we have too much salt in our diet. Salt causes hypertension. This is sort of a well, well-worn trope. Um, but apparently if you're, if you're not actually diagnosed with hypertension, if you're not already uh, at risk of serious high blood pressure, for most people, the, you're – Salt intake really does not matter that much. Uh, you can you can have a lot of salt in your diet, and you're fine. And Dan, you you insisted. It sounded like 
Put in a lot of salt. Yes, and I, I've heard this from from some of the nation's foremost pasta minds that you, you need a lot of salt in that in that water because when you bite into that, you know, you're sure you're going to put sauce in your pasta, but when you take a first bite out of that pasta, hot out of the the boiling water, there are two things you're tasting for. One is the texture. You want to make sure that it's firm and toothsome. Tooth sinkable is the technical term I like Tooth to use. Tooth sinkable. Yes. This is in but your it, mouth. This is, feel. this is beyond al dente. This is a this is a higher level it's language. Just, it, yeah, it's it's a more uh, scientific term for okay. al dente. It's a, spectrum, a spectrum of tooth sinkability. Right, right. Yes. Tooth sinkability. That's right. And so, and then you want to t- taste for the flavor. You know, and and the flavor it should be a little bit salty. Pasta should taste good plain. Sure, you can add other stuff to make it better. But if it tastes totally bland coming out of the pot, then it's you're a looking problem. at nothing. You're looking at nothing. Nicole, thank you so much. You, that was a great you, question. Inspirational. Thank great. you. Thank okay. you. Uh, I love this next question. As someone who is uh, fascinated by the future, I'm very fascinated by this by this next caller uh, who wants to know about lab-grown meat. We have Dub, and uh, let's see. Uh, Dub, are you there? I am here. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate this. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Dub, Dylan. lab-grown meat. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, so yeah, my question, I really, how far away are we from affordable, clean, lab-produced meat? Um, I have a diet of a high high protein, high fat. Seems to work really well for me, and it really works best when filled with animal protein. But just kind of like you guys were uh, discussing earlier, there's you know the battle of the ethics uh, behind it or the guilt behind uh, where the meat comes from. So this uh, intrigues me quite a bit. So I have on the electric TV machine. I have tasted lab grown meat, and it tastes exactly like meat. So what uh, researchers have done is get the stem cells of meat and grow them in culture, and uh, they produced a hamburger that right now would cost hundreds of dollars per burger or a fraction of $200 per burger. It's basically like Jurassic Park, right? Like, like they, took, they take a little bit of DNA, essentially, or cells from a real live animal, and then they grow it in—they take those cells and grow them into— actual meat yeah, without right. growing another new animal. That's right. right. Basically, you're growing the like the, the muscle of the cow without the rest of the cow. There's right. no baseball glove leather, no intestines, no uh, cat gut for guitar strings, and none no, of this. And no cow mind. Whatever a cow mind is. No cow mind. Yeah. Yes. Mind of a cow. So <laughs> uh, I tasted it, and it's remarkable. It's just like meat. But then there's people that were in the audience that were as bit, as creeped out by eating lab-grown cells as eating animal of true animal or uh, from a whole animal cell. Furthermore, uh, recently I was uh, with my friends at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and <laughs> we visited this lab where <clears throat> they have found a uh, protein and a molecule they refer to as the heme, uh, having to do with hemoglobin and iron. And so they found they can insert this uh, genetically, the genetic modification of crops and get it to t- get us, for example, a soy product to taste like meat. So th- when I think about the cost of this hamburger right now, getting back to this one idea, thank you for calling, Dub. And you get back to the cost of the hamburger, it's $100 right now. But if you were making them on McDonald's scales, you got to think it would be cheaper, far cheaper. I mean, pick a number, a hundredth of the cost of raising a whole cow on a giant farm. So I can imagine as research continues, Dub, that this will become affordable in one form or another. And by that, I mean either 
in a derived vegetable form or in a derived animal form. I mean, we are all <clears throat> one of the insights of Russell and Darwin is near as anybody can tell, every living thing you've ever met is descended from a common ancestor. So we all have DNA. We've all got this thing. So it seems to me there's some convergence coming. So Dub, stay tuned. I am confident, I predict, here early in the 21st century that uh, laboratory-style or industrial-style satisfactory meat products will be available at reasonable cost. And Dub, am I correct that that's something that you're waiting for? You sound like you're uh, you're eager for the lab-grown burger rather than creeped out by it. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. No, no creepiness factor that at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's so funny to me that what what we consider creepy and then not creepy. These things are so subjective, and they're so can be so different in different cultures around the world. I mean, the idea that like taking a chicken's leg and biting into it. Is that's, totally normal. It happens every day. That's a normal thing to right, do. Right, exactly. But, but yet, like, taking this thing out of this Petri dish is totally bizarre and strange. You know, like, you know, I, I don't I don't know. When you really think of it as an actual chicken's leg, I think that seems more creepy. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. Furthermore, let me ask you, Dan, you've eaten everything everywhere, right? I eat, I've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> so compare a lobster or a crab— in New England, this at one point, the lobster was considered such a junk fish that uh, it was not allowed to be fed to prisoners more than twice a week. Right. The story. It was called the cockroach of the sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then people eat cockroaches. Or, right. Exactly. Or, uh, 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 crickets. Yeah. Things. Crickets. What am I looking for? Uh, Orthoptera blattidae in your insect uh, family and I mean order and family. So – You've eaten a lot of crickets. I have tried some. I wouldn't say a lot. I, you know, I, I will be honest. I got a little bit of a of an insect phobia. You got, you got creeped, right? Right. But but like I wouldn't judge other people. Certainly, like it doesn't like it. It intellectually, it makes total sense to me. Eat a crab. Eat a cricket. Yeah. Like Get and I have eaten some. Like I've eaten crickets on top of ice cream, and they were crunchy, and it was fine. I've eaten a lot of termites. What do you think of those? Well, they're fine because they were prepared in how to say like you would prepare. Uh, chuck roast meat with garlic mm-hmm. and other conventional seasonings, and they are crunchy and quite satisfying. Quite satisfying. Oh, yeah. And t- let t- me tell you, there's t- no shortage worms. of termites, people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not happening. T- toasted mealworms were also quite good. We we tried that out uh, on the on the yeah. on the Bill Nye show on Netflix. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, Dub. You have raised an excellent question, and you just think about how we've industrialized agriculture. Already, and people are concerned or critical of industrial agriculture, but that's how we feed seven and a half billion people instead of fewer than a billion. You know, my grandparents or my great grandparents' time, there were fewer than a billion people in the world. Now there's going to be nine. <laughs> Speaking of which, thank you, Dub. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. 
Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. Derek, you are you are on the show. Uh, hi, Bill. Hi, Dan. Thanks for taking my question. Thank you, Derek. Thanks, Derek. My my question is: Why is ketchup a non-Newtonian fluid? Oh, cool. well, that's simple enough. <laughs> so everybody, <laughs> you've clearly called the right show. <laughs> he's, uh, he's what does he mean, Dan? He's saying why is ketchup fixotropic? That's what he's saying. Of course, it is. That's how I heard it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, you guys. There's something called a Newtonian fluid named after Isaac Newton. And I did, Isaac knew who was this guy? He discovered or quantified, as far as anybody can tell, was the first guy to write down the idea that not only is the earth pulling the apple down, but the apple is somehow ever so slightly pulling the earth up. And he's sitting around musing in Latin. You know, it seems to me our sun is really a star, just like all those other bright points of light. Huh, interesting insight. Have a nice day. What? What is this? <laughs> and then along with that, he investigated fluids, stuff that flows. And uh, we're talking about oil and water, and he had these two concentric cylinders, like cans, and he'd spend one inside the other and watched how much drag he created. And this is before we had ketchup in its modern form. Is that and, correct? And, and yeah, and, and he <clears throat> even... In order to solve the problem and understand it, he invented a calculus, a type of math involving infinite, an infinite number of infinitely small things. Wow. Along with that, we created, we use the modern expression Newtonian fluid, like an oil, like water, like uh, air is a, a Newton, generally a Newtonian fluid. But toothpaste and ketchup, they are, do not behave like Newtonian fluids. And so there's something about the molecules, their length, and the way they link together that makes them uh, stay pretty well stuck until you – the expression, the physics expression is until you shear them. And you know what shearing is, everybody, because you've used a pair of shears, a pair of scissors. And shearing is where one surface is going one way and the surface next to it is going the other way. And so the toothpaste or the ketchup sits in the tube or the bottle until you give it a jolt, until you stress it, until you shear it. And so then the toothpaste comes out like crazy and the ketchup comes out like crazy. And the furthermore fabulous thing, Jacob, about your insight here, uh, Derek, I mean Derek, I was joking. I meant Derek, Derek. <laughs> uh, that somebody discovered or reasoned or screwed around with ketchup enough to design a bottle that's that's wide at the bottom and tapered tapered near the neck near the near the outlet of ketchup so you have to really whack on it to induce enough shear for the ketchup to come out and when it comes out it comes out i won't say in a catastrophic way but a lot of ketchup at once and this has wonderful properties for hot dogs or vegan hot dogs uh, impossible hot dogs and impossible fries and French fries or pommes frites, whatever it is. And so the reason is, as we say, a, ma a magician would say what? 
Corey, Dan, magicians say it's all done with uh, magic, magic, with mirrors, with mirrors. Oh, no. yes. But the chemist <laughs> says it's all done with molecules. Ah, and that's I, I see hilarious. Where, I see where you're going. <laughs> that's hilarious. But I, uh, it has something to do with the interaction of the sugar, which has these OHs hanging, these hydroxyl groups hanging on the edges of the molecules, and um, uh, the water that's in there, where it bonds on bonds, bonds on bonds, and then it shakes loose when you give it enough shear. And just think what a mess it would be to try to deal with toothpaste that just came out of the tube as soon as you unscrewed it. It would right. be, of, be of no good. You but would also, not be pasting. It, isn't it something about, about a non-Newtonian fluid like ketchup that, that it takes a long time for it to start moving? That's what I mean. But, but yeah. once it starts moving, it tends to increase in velocity. Yeah, yeah. It's, once you get it shearing, off it shears. Right. So you get, you get the weight and then you get the incredible gratification. Yeah. So now, 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 Derek, are you uh, a fan of thick ketchup? What, what on earth prompted this question? Um. I was always given uh, ketchup as the example of what a non-Newtonian fluid um, is. And everybody, you know, ketchup being so ubiquitous, you know, it's, it's really easy for people to understand um, how a non-Newtonian fluid behaves if you think of it like ketchup. What I never understood really was why ketchup is non-Newtonian. If you think about the ingredients, it's mostly water, it's salt, it's sugar, it's, you know, uh, well, some I, vinegar. I, that's a good question. So what... I, I invite uh, a listener, an expert on this, to check in, but I'm pretty sure it has to do with the interaction of water and sugar. And sugar is this um, disaccharide, has two sides, di sides. And so uh, the water, which is HOH, H2O, and the disaccharide has these OHs, oxygen and hydrogens, hanging off the side. And there's some fabulous... Interaction between the distance uh, on like a benzene ring where six carbons are in a circle. Bill, you're going there's, deep here. Well, there's <laughs> some interaction with the distance between the corners of the ring and the length of a water molecule. And But it is, everybody, you can experience non-Newtonian fluids with ketchup. And there's this fabulous old word somebody coined, thixotropic. It it it's it moves in a thick way. Come on, <laughs> well, what no, a great word! Thick no, no, Now the kids just say that ketchup is thick. That's what the kids. Yeah, just say. Kids. not as good though. Yeah. That word's not as good. Of, and does anybody say lit a tropic? <laughs> not uh, yet. No, I think that's no, over. But I think that I think that thick tropic is a great band name, Bill. I think uh, if you want to take that well, on the road, well, we could. But I guess it was really their first album. <laughs> And then the for their older stuff, yeah, Thixotropic, they're kind of well, overproduced. How about Bill Nye and the Thixop, Bill Nye and the Thixotropics? So, if it were a basketball team, <laughs> would it like the Jazz? Right? Would it just be Thixotrop? Would it be the Thixotropic? I think it would be the Thick. The I think thick. it would like the Heat. It'd be like the th- it'd be right. the thing. Right. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, Derek, you started all this, and, <laughs> yes. and thank you so much. Thank you for taking us there. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Uh, let's see, Larkin, are you on the line? I am. How are you? Uh, we're good. Uh, we have a question we would like to answer. All right. So my question is uh, doesn't have as many moral implications as all of your your big picture questions. Excellent. Is, that, that we, when we, I melt, <laughs> it's a it's a simple one. When I melt butter in the microwave, say for popcorn or something like that, I have noticed that sometimes it melts really quickly, and sometimes even if I chop it into tiny pieces, it takes ages to melt. Like I'm hitting the 30-second button over and over and over again. 
I can't tell if it's a temp thing or a microwave thing or a salted versus unsalted thing. What do you think is going on? Okay. I'm going to be very skeptical of salted versus unsalted. Now, we are not there with you. We cannot enjoy this, uh, Larkin, your your butter endeavors. But how much <laughs> flipping butter are you melting at one <laughs> sitting where you're punching the 30 thing more than once? Like if I have – and Mike just talking again about me – if I have a stick of butter and I want it to be soft, I go six, seven seconds in the microwave and you're going to get it to sliceability. When you want to melt it to include in a recipe or perhaps more importantly, pour on popcorn, then you're into your 35, 40 seconds, but you're not into your two minutes. How much? That's what you would think. But I am taking, you know, maybe a quarter stick, half a stick of butter. I have a nutrition degree, so I try to be mindful of the butter. And I'm chopping it into, like, quarter-sized pieces, and it is not melting. Now I have another hypothesis for you, Larkin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Different areas of your microwave have different intensities of microwave radiation, microwaves, uh, microwave flux, uh, flow of microwaves. So next time you are confronted with this, and I think you have to work backwards if I understand it, you have to find a stick of Mm -hmm. butter that's not melting very well. Move it literally to another part of the microwave, uh, another part of the turntable or the center of the microwave. And I also, I cannot help okay. but wonder, none of our business, of course, <laughs> but are you keeping the butter in, say, a Pyrex pitcher and it's in the refrigerator and you take it out of the refrigerator and so the heat capacity of the Pyrex pitcher has to be overcome before the butter's going to melt? I'm just wondering. Not usually. It's usually in a bowl, like just a Corelware bowl. Love the Corel. Not that I'm a spokesperson, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a great product as a result of understanding ceramics. So keep us posted. But next time, next time it doesn't melt, try moving it to a different area, a different place on the microwave okay. turntable or bottom plate. Right. When, when in doubt, scientific method, change one of your variables Examine the results. See if, and the hard thing mm-hmm. for all of us is to change one thing at a time. Yes. We all change three things, and then you can't figure yeah. out what happened. Yeah, that's true. Larkin, this is a great okay. report to us. Let us know what happened. Thank you we for will. your question. I'll, I'll tweet at you. Okay. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, that's what the kids <laughs> that was great. do. great. Their electric you. internets. Yes. <laughs> Science Rules will be right back. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. Science Rules is back. Uh, What do we got, Corey? Uh, That's a question from Julie. And uh, here, Julie, uh, you're on the air. Go ahead and ask your question. Well, hello. My question is, why do we like more food the older we get? What's happening in our mouth? Wow. That's a great Dan, question. Dan, you're the man for this. You have kids, and you're not a kid as much anymore as you once were. I mean, I, I think the short answer is exposure. I mean, you know, and, and there's a lot of research done on food aversions. Why do people dislike certain foods? How can you learn to like a food that you don't like? And the short answer that sensory scientists will tell you is, 
uh, exposure. So, you know, start off by exposing yourself in small amounts. We actually did an episode of The Sporkful recently about picky eaters called Indefensive Picky Eaters. We got into a lot of the science in picky eating. One of the things I learned is that it can take someone 30 or 40 tastes of a food before they acquire a liking for it. And so I think mostly what's happening in this case is just that like the first 30 times you tried it, you didn't really like it. But then finally, it's in small doses, it ends up in a few things that you eat by accident or at a friend's house. And then finally... You know, your eyes are open to it. I've acquired a taste for a lot of foods in my 30s and 40s that I never liked when I was a kid. Now, when you're when you're a kid and you're being a picky eater, right? Are you doing that because you really don't like it, or is it a way for you to embrace that two-year-old discovery that you can say no? Certainly, that's part of it. That's definitely part of it. Uh, the most common ages for picky eating are around age three to six. But there's also a good evolutionary argument to explain why kids might be, you know, it might be natural and normal for little kids to be picky eaters. You know, uh, go back to uh, cave person days and we were wandering through the forest. You know, the three-year-old who put any berry in their mouths without knowing what the heck they were eating was not likely to live long enough to reproduce. Whereas the kids who were naturally suspicious of new foods and only ate the foods that they were comfortable with and that they knew they really liked were the ones who were more likely to survive. So uh, I think that some amount of skepticism of new foods makes evolutionary sense. And you see evolution without evolution biology just it doesn't make any sense but i, I also think you know from a just from a, like a like a social or, or cultural point of view imagine you know kids experience what their you know their parents and their sort of immediate social circle eats uh, so you know that, that defines what's familiar and there's a common thing that you know foods from other cultures seem strange or they kind of you know, evoke a yuck factor but again you know, th- that makes sense if you think about you know how you get socialized that you're used to you know your immediate family or your immediate clan they define normal, they define your world. And then as you start traveling, you get acclimated to other cultures and other groups. Their foods also become more familiar to you. So I think there's a, I think there's a certain natural thing there as well that you know, as your social world gets bigger, your, your culinary world or your palate gets bigger as well. So also there's commonality, culture to culture. Is this true? We have naan, we have flatbread, we have pizza – we have samosa. We have yeah. I mean, certainly, there are some universals and some basic ingredients that are all that are in many many parts of the world. But there are also big differences. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is watching, you know, as a, when a new newer immigrant group comes to America and brings their food culture with them. Often, that food is at first viewed with some amount of suspicion as are those people. And then over time, as the people assimilate, so too do the foods and and they become, quote unquote, less threatening um, over time. I mean, you look at look at sushi. I mean, would you, know, you look at sushi in the 1960s when Japanese food was first taking root in America? Most Americans thought that the idea of eating raw fish was totally bizarre and strange and and foreign and and Creepy. weird. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. And, and now we're eating it up you know, by the handful. We've acquired a taste for it, and we've learned that it's amazing and delicious. Um, you look at the number of spicy foods that we eat now, you know, that are not part of a typical Western European diet. Look at all the snack foods that have spicy flavors now, the spicy Doritos, the spicy chips that are everywhere. Look at sriracha. This is the influence of of newer immigrant groups that tend to have spicier foods. And, you know, it's it's making... And, and, and so all of us are... You know, as a country, we our palates are being opened up to to more new flavors. Well, so here's a question: D- Does that flow go the other way? If if you eat more adventurously, do you think that opens up your cultural perspective in other ways? Does that make you 
more open to other kinds of people? It certainly would intuitively that would be a testable hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of of other groups, um, <laughs> but 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 this is something we've talked about in the Sporkful a yeah. lot, and I think the the short answer is, uh, food can be a good entry, an an, uh, an entry point to other cultures, but you know, but it, it shouldn't be. But but simply eating another culture's food doesn't suddenly make you an expert in it, um, and it, it's only can be the beginning of more exploration. But it's a beginning. Right. It's a, it's That's a beginning. Right. Absolutely. On another note, uh, I was in Italy in October a few years ago, and I get it. Everything comes ripe at the same time. The wheat, the tomatoes, the olives, the lemons, everything. We got to deal with this, man. We got it. What are we going to do? Okay, we're going to we're going to dry it out. We're going to make noodles. We're going to put the tomatoes in cans. This is what, what we'll do. We'll put the olives in cans. It's going to be good. It's going to be fine. <coughs> And I see where uh, that culture emerges. And so fish, uh, the type of fish you eat in sushi depends on the season, or it used to depend on the season. Uh, it's, uh, food brings people together, as you would point out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you tried preserved lemons? Yeah, I think this so. This is the thing that I've been getting into. Mm. Oh, my God. You just like, like take a lemon— Slice it in quarters without totally severing it and just rub a bunch of salt all on the mm. insides and then smush – you do a bunch and then smush them down into a jar and smush and smush to get the juice out so that, that they're submerged in the liquid. Submerged in lemon juice. That's right. And then just let them sit on your counter for as long as you want. And the, the, the rinds will become soft and edible and they develop a deep sort of fermented um, savoriness that is so satisfying. After about eight months or a year, I finally put mine in the fridge and now I'll just take like a tiny sliver of it and chop it up and blend it into something. And that one tiny sliver adds so much flavor. It's amazing. Dan, you're, you're, I, I think are I'm, you okay? I think <laughs> you know, Dan, I think I might be old enough now that I'm ready to try that. So. <laughs> thank you. Well said. Uh, well said. So, well. Julie, Julie, thank you so much. I actually have to ask one question. Do you have children? Is that part of why you asked this question? Well, I ha I'm a school food service director, so I have like 2,500 kids. And um, there's, I noticed there's a big shift between, like, elementary-age kids and middle school-age kids with what they want to eat. Um, you know, the middle school-age kids are all after the, um, the spicy, the buffalo, the sriracha, you know, and high school-age kids. So, um, and personally, yeah, I do have kids myself. But, um, uh, yeah, there seems to be a giant shift when in the teenage years or early teens where they will be more adventurous. And I was wondering if there was a physiological, like if taste buds were diminishing or, you know, like super taster buds were um, falling away or, or something like that. But um, I don't know. It also could be peer pressure. Somebody sees somebody eat something spicy, so they give it a whirl. Yeah. You guys, Dan, you have a joy. Do you eat really spicy mm -hmm. food, like chemically, thermally, chemically hot food? Um, personally, yeah. I'm moderately spicy. Because I know people that, well, you got to have five stars, man. Yeah, that's annoying. Like, that, <laughs> like I, I, Spicy food should not be like feats of strength. Like, it's not a taste. It's not a test of your manhood or personhood yes. to, like, withstand more spicy food. Like, you know, you should, people should eat what, what they like. Yeah. And, right. okay. Julie, I would say, uh, also, I want to add, first of all, feeding 2,500 students, oh, my God, like, thank you for your service. That sounds like the hardest job. But um, I think that, uh, 
you know, I, I, I have seen a little bit of research which suggests that the younger kids are more tend to gravitate more towards sugar. And that as you enter puberty in your teen years, you tend to move away from sugar, that it, you know, it's sort of a quick, cheap energy fix that you would gravitate towards as a little kid. And so I, I, I do feel that way. So this is anecdotal, but I do certainly, I, that was my experience. Like when you're a little kid, you think of like ice cream and candy, but like, I don't remember my teen years being filled with sweets in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. A great question. You sparked thank a lot you. of conversation here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's see. We have a question here. Uh, Evan, you're on the air. What is your question? Is the celery juice craze fad or fact? It's got to be a fad. <laughs> but celery with salt? Oh, yes. Celery with peanut butter? Whoa. <laughs> and for some of us of a certain culture, uh, Dr. Brown's celery tonic is delicious. Celery tonic, right? And there is a, there is something called celery salt, which I think the celery part of that I don't know I don't know who has ever actually tasted the celery and celery salt. But we did an episode of the Sporkful about the history of celery, and um, and it turns out that celery this is its second go around as a trendy vegetable. Back in the late eighteen and early nineteen hundreds, celery was like the avocado toast, the kale of its time. Rich Victorian people in the Upper East Side of Manhattan would have celery vases. They would display their celery proudly, and and Kalamazoo, Michigan, was known as Celery City. It was like the the hottest craze, and so uh, all things old are new again. So celery, if you like the taste of it, enjoy it. Okay, so I think the uh, the upshot is, yes, it's a fad, but yes, it's delicious. <laughs> Just, okay. uh, if they ask too much money for it, be skeptical. And what's the next food trend? Oh, the what, next, Dan, the, what's the next food trend? Oh, the next food. Well, what, what, what's a, what's a vegetable? Kale. That, Kale is well, now. Kale's, kale's, kale's probably on its way out. Kale, yeah, celery is just coming up. What's a vegetable that like is is really an also ran right well, now? Uh, arugula. I think we've arugged. Yeah, that's that's done. I think iceberg <laughs> lettuce. Oh yeah, ice, that, yep. I love iceberg. Gotta say, uh, I was raised on it. I, <laughs> Bring on the iceberg. I people. think iceberg's gonna make. There's a comeback. your prediction. All that's right. it. Dude. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Will Romain let us ever make a comeback? Remain. Remain uh, is if, making a comeback, isn't it, as a uh, uh, a holder, a holster yeah. of a frou frou, um, a frou frou uh, hors d'oeuvre. Yes, but how do you feel, Bill, when you get a salad served to you? Let's say it's a Caesar salad, and they give you all the long stalks of romaine piled up like a pile of, of firewood almost. Uh, you can't fork one of those pieces of lettuce and get them into your mouth. You have so, to use a knife. So, people, can I just speak briefly? Please. Okay. If you have a chopstick, <laughs> where are you? You're nowhere, people. You need chopsticks. If you have a fork, you can get started. But the other side is the knife. The knife is the pusher. Not only is it, not only is it the slicer, it is the backstop for forking. All right, people, this is, I tell the young people, by young people, I'm talking about people who are 12, 13, 14 years old, I explain this fundamental thing. There's the guy. What's his name? Archimedes. He's, if I have a lever long enough and a place to stand, ah. I can move the earth. Without the place to stand, you ain't moving no planet. <laughs> it's not happening. So when you're presented with the firewood pile of romaine, embrace the knife. Cut, push, poke, enjoy. And Thank I, you for your yes. question. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I would just add, if you wait long enough, every single food will come back as a fad. Thank you. I love you, man. I'm Bill Nye, and I've been joined by Corey S. Powell. And today's guest has been none other than Dan Pashman from the Sporkful Podcast. Download it, subscribe to it, turn it up loud, 
And remember, when it comes to the palatable and potable part of our universe, science rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show so they, too, can turn it up loud. Thanks. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Mixing and original theme music were by Casey Halford. Our intern is Lisa Wang. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher, where science rules. Do you have a question? Is there something that's been bugging you, something you want to know about? Well, call us and leave a message, and Corey and I will do our best to answer your question on the air or on the podcast or on your recording device. Call us at 201-472-0785. Leave your fascinating question and Corey and I are going to get to it. 201-472-0785. Stitcher. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.